that. Good to see you today. I was good to have folks out and about that uh, maybe the weather last week, last week was so bitterly cold and had a lot of things to deal with. And we still had a good turnout, but sure good to see you today. Good to see these young babies here. We have several newborns really in, uh, I guess, the Johnson. This is the first time she's been with us in services, but um, others as well, the Blacks and the, and, uh, the Claytons and others. And I, Someone told me the other day we had like seven new babies either have arrived or, or on, will be arriving soon. And so we rejoice in that and praise the Lord for it. We're in the Gospel of Mark this morning, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 14 again. If you'd find your Bible there, and we'll begin reading here in just a moment. As I've said many times, uh, when we're doing a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of the Bible, it's um, you take whatever comes up, and that's what I like about it. And it, it, may, it pauses, causes you to pause and maybe look at it a little closer than you normally would as you're just reading through the Bible. And if you read through the Bible as slow as we preach through the Bible, it would take you a while to read through the Bible. But uh, it's good to slow down and kind of just soak in, uh, especially as we are looking at this time uh, building up to, leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. And um, we're going to begin reading uh, today in verse um, 53. If you're able to stand, please stand with us for the reading of the scripture, just to kind of renew uh, your minds about last week. Verse 50 was a fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen in verse 50, and they all forsook him and fled. Everyone... Uh, every one of the disciples, when it, as they got to that moment when Jesus was arrested, was apprehended in the Garden of Gethsemane, even though they thought they could never fail him, all of them forsook him and fled. And let's begin reading in verse 53, and it says, And they, talking about those hundreds perhaps of people there in the garden who came to arrest Jesus, they led Jesus away to the high priest. So this is really the beginning of a series of what we would call a trial or pre-trial investigations into Jesus. And there's a number of them. The first several are religious. They're done by the religious rulers, the Sanhedrin. The next several are political by the Roman powers that be. And they're making they're going to make these charges against Jesus. Eventually it will be led that will lead to a death sentence. We'll see that in a little while. And of course his execution. So Mark is recording for us the details of this first accusa- a series of, of examinations. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him, with the high priest, were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And Peter followed him afar off. So now Peter, even though they all forsook them and fled, now they're moving from the Garden of Gethsemane and they're moving to uh, the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest. And Peter apparently has mustered up enough courage that he's He's getting closer to him, although he kind of keeps a safe distance. Verse 54, And Peter followed him afar off 
even into the palace of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. And the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. Now we'll expand upon this in a moment. But you notice they're not looking for the truth. They're not searching for the truth. They're, they're false witnesses and they're looking for witnesses against Jesus. It's very clear in the Bible. The chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. It's, if I was titling the message today, I'd call it uh, a criminal without a crime. I mean, they had the man they wanted to kill. They just couldn't pin anything on him. And that's really what this investigation is all about. Let's pray as we get started. Father, please bless as we study today. Open our eyes, our hearts. God, we're not here to just uh, be distracted. We're not here uh, to just fill time or to just be focused on other people or other matters. We're here to give our attention to the, the all-powerful and never-changing Word of God. And so please work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to spend most of our time today talking about these powers that be, the ones that were investigating Jesus, the one that will uh, sentence him to death. But because verse 54 mentions Peter, I just want to mention him for, as we kind of work our way into the primary part of the message because he's a real example of something. Verse 54 says, Peter followed him afar off. Now, aren't you glad for the specific language of the Bible? I mean, details that we may not even consider. He didn't just follow him. He followed him from a distance. He followed him afar off. Even into the palace of the high priest. And he sat with the servants, Peter did, and warmed himself at the fire. So we see an example here, really, of the power the debilitating power of fear. Um, when, as we said earlier, when Jesus was apprehended, the disciples scattered. Peter's now regained some composure. He's following him from a safe distance. And next week, Lord willing, we will deal with the passage where Peter denied the Lord three times. But that, that happens after what we're covering today. So Peter, think about this. When I think of Peter, I think of the boldest, most vocal of the 12. I think you would, you would agree with that. He, he was quick to speak. He was courageous. He was really a, a, a bold, vocal follower of Jesus. And yet we see in our text that fear has really taken control of him. Now, I, I have a firm belief that when we read things in the Bible, we read to learn about the people that he's talking about and things that they went through, but I think we also find in the Bible we can learn a lot about ourselves as we read the Bible. And Peter was overcome by fear. You know, fear is self-protecting. Fear wants to protect ourselves. And, and so for Peter, he's trying to remain incognito. He doesn't want anybody to know who he is. We'll see that next week. He doesn't want people to see him as a follower of Jesus and he's blending in here at the fire of the enemy. He's just sort of blending in, and, but he will be discovered. But just a reminder how dangerous fear is. 
You know, God hath not given us, Paul wrote to Timothy, the spirit of fear, but of love and power and a sound mind. Fear and faith cannot really coexist. I mean, either we're giving in to our fears or we're trusting God by faith. And we see that in Peter's life, but let's just be reminded we need to see it in our own life. God didn't call us to be afraid of everything. God called us to fear God, not to fear what men can do, but to fear what God can do because fear has the ability, whether it's, we're not, whether it's not just talking about the fear to speak to people, the fear of witnessing, the fear of sharing our faith, the fear of giving a testimony. All these fears keep us from doing what God wants us to do. And fear has the ability to make us weak and uh, uh, incapable or, or, or um, powerless. And God has not called us to be fearful people. That doesn't mean God has called us to be cocky or brash or self-confident, but God has called us to trust him. So Peter, we see the power of fear. But now we're going to focus really on another power, and that's seen in this religious group, the power of blindness. These people were blind, spiritually blind. Verse 53, Mark, in the section we're looking at, tells us that Jesus was led away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. So, so we're talking about something that happened in the middle of the night. And when they get to where they're going, where the high priest is, they're already assembled. And who's there? The high priest is there, the chief priest, the elders, the scribes. They're all assembled. This is, this is, this is all of the people, these, these notorious hypocrites... And we ask the question, you ought to ask the question in your mind tonight, or today, why, why were they there? Why are they meeting in the middle of the night? And the answer is simple. They were planning, they were plotting the murder of Jesus. Wouldn't that, isn't that the kind of religious people you'd like to hang out with? Up in the middle of the night, planning how to kill Jesus. That's exactly what they were doing. And, and we see that he was taken, Mark says, to the high priest. Now, this is a detail that you, that you may not think is that important, but I want to share it anyway. There was actually a transition at that time between high priests. Uh, Annas, A-N-N-A-S, we'll see him in a moment in the Gospel of John. Annas was the outgoing high priest and... Caiaphas, the more familiar name probably to some of you, Caiaphas was the new high priest. Now we're going to go to some other passages today, maybe more than we normally would on a Sunday morning. So hold your place here in Mark 14 and go with me to the Gospel of John. And we're going to look at two passages in John chapter 18. Because I think um, studying the Gospels together just puts things together like the pieces of a puzzle. And people may say... Why didn't God just put it all in one gospel and put us all the details in one place? Well, that'd be like someone writing a book and you just, you just write one chapter. We're gonna put, we just got one chapter and all the details in one chapter. So you have four different chapters and they all have different details. And John gives us, I believe, some important details in John chapter 18 and verse 12. It says there, then the band of the captain, the band, excuse me, 
That's not a musical band. That's a band of soldiers. Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. Now notice this. And led him away to Annas first. For he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. So they took him first to Annas. And Annas was the high priest, but... But his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the high priest, became the high priest that year. Now look a little further over in verse 19. The high priest, and this is talking about Annas here, the high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. He's being investigated. This is the first of the trials, the first of the examination. He asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him in verse 20, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple whether the Jews always resort and in secret have I said nothing. He says to the high priest, you know, everybody knows what I stand for and who I am and what I teach. Verse 21, why askest thou me? Ask them, Jesus says to this high priest, ask them which heard me what I've said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou? Me. Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. So he first went to Annas, who was the high priest, the high priest that was transitioning out. And then he went to Caiaphas, who was the, the high priest that is just being taken, uh, taking his position. So go back to Mark chapter 14, and we're going to make a few of these departures this morning. So Stay with us. Keep your Bible open and ready. So he's taken, first of all, to Annas. He's examined. Annas then sent him to Caiaphas. And so if you're counting the different legal or religious, I should say, but legal examinations, here are the first two. Verse 53, if you look there again in in Mark chapter 14 and verse 53, when he gets to the high priest, there's the Caiaphas, that's in the, in the, the uh, quarters of the high priest. Look who's with him. The chief priests and the elders and the scribes. So all of these scholars, among, among who all there, they're scholars, they're, they're lawyers. Scribes were like lawyers, experts of the law. They're religious leaders. And technically what you're seeing, it says the council And the council is a word you may or may not be familiar with. It's the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a a religious body. It's the supreme council of the Jewish people. Uh, The word Sanhedrin actually means council chamber. And the number of people normally that served on the Sanhedrin was 71. So when he goes to this group, imagine he's not just a handful of people. We're a lot of people here. They had all the different tribes or groups of the Jews were represented in the Sanhedrin. And of course, the high priest presided over them. And so 
Um, Israel, again, this is just, um, this is kind of political, but Israel was under the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire controlled the world. But the Jewish people were allowed some measure of self-government. And for Jesus to be killed, and that's the objective, for Jesus to be killed, he would have to be executed by the Roman government. So the Sanhedrin needs the Roman government now. And they need to build a case that's strong enough then when they take it to the Roman government that they will agree that this Jesus should be executed. So what they're doing here is, the, is sort of the equivalent of what we would call a grand jury. They're meeting to determine really if there's probable cause. Has a crime been committed? And so, so this, I think it's important to understand what they're doing. And there's several steps to it. And so the first thing they got to do is they've got to find witnesses. Their half evidence is required. If you're going to get if you're going to execute someone, you need some kind of evidence. The difference in this story is, this narrative is, the prosecution has heard no evidence really and yet they're determined to convict and they're on a search. And the purpose of this search is to either find evidence or fabricate evidence because we want this man dead. And so that's kind of what we're seeing here in Mark chapter 14. Look in verse 55, it says, And the chief priests and all the council, all the council, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, not just the high priest, but the chief priests and all the council sought, sought for witnesses against Jesus to put him to death and found none. I mean, are you, like myself, are you kind of always struck with the wickedness of what's taking place here? I mean, if they, there are people in this room, and if you were, if you or I were going to court, they wouldn't have to look very far to find something wrong in our life, but we're talking about Jesus, who's never done any wrong, but they're determined to find some wrong he's done. These are evil people. They're recruiting false witnesses to testify in the middle of the night. And they're only interested in the death penalty. They don't want to slap on the wrist. They don't want prison time. They only want one thing. They want him dead. Aren't you glad you don't belong to a religious order like this? There had to be at least two witnesses to put him to death. Their own writings, their own Jewish writings from Deuteronomy 17 says this. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. The mouth of one witness shall not be put to death. So not only must they find somebody who saw something or who heard something, but they have to have two people that agree that this actually happened. Now this is classic. This is a classic case of the guilty judging the innocent. Uh, reminds me of a lot of things we see in our world sometimes. It says in verse 55 though, the last two words of verse 55, they found none. They found none. They're searching for something they could use to condemn Jesus. They found none. Look in verse 56. For many, have that word many underlined in my Bible, for many bear false witness against him, 
but their witness agreed not together. There were many people who had false accusations against Jesus. By the way, for what it's worth, because many people speak against someone does not necessarily mean that they're telling the truth. Many people gave false accusations against Jesus, but none of them could stand up. So what can they do? You would think they would throw out the case, right? You would think they'd say this is a futile effort, but you know what they did? They just searched for more witnesses. You know why? Because they're not looking for the truth. They're not looking for the truth. They have found a person that they want to be guilty and they're just looking for a crime. Just searching for a crime. This reminds me of the fake media that reports fake news from anonymous sources. <laughs> so it's just exactly what it looks like. An anonymous source. If you have a source, you have to identify the source. But you know what? They're not, they're not interested in the truth. They're interested in an agenda. And that's exactly what's happening here in the trial of Jesus. So let's look in verse 57. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying. So here's a, some more people they found. This is what they said in verse 58. We heard him say, we heard Jesus say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Now that's another accusation, another false accusation. We heard him say, we were there. We actually heard him. We know, we heard ourselves what he said. And, and, okay, hold your finger here, Mark, and let's go again to the Gospel of John because I want us to see the only recorded place where Jesus actually said that. And it's in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and we're going to read beginning in verse 18. Just while you're turning there, John chapter 2, 18 this is the first time in John chapter 2, the first time when Jesus ran the money changers out of the temple. And he did it later on in his ministry, but did it in the early part of his ministry. And so it says in verse 18, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, if you're, John chapter 2 verse 18, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What signs show, showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Why are you you're running people out? you got this whip. You're turning over the tables. What, tell us what this means. Verse 19. Jesus said, here's a sign. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise, raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. Right? He wasn't talking about the physical temple. He's talking about the temple of his body. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. They said, but it took, it took all these 
days, years to build this temple, 40 and 6 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in 3 days? Verse 22 it says, When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now everybody didn't understand what Jesus was saying when Jesus said, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But notice what Jesus never said. They said in Mark 14, We heard him say, Destroy this temple made with man's hands and we'll raise it up. Jesus never said anything about man's hands. Again, it's like the fake news, the media. They're twisting words. They're taking things out of context. They're making it say what they want it to say. They said, we heard him say this ourselves. And you know what they're doing? They're adding to the story. They're changing the whole story. He never said that. And if you go back again to Mark chapter 14 and verse 59, after this, um, it says, neither did their witness agree together. So, so once again, they can't get two people to say the same thing. All these different witnesses, all these false accusations. Let me, let me just say this before we go to the end of this. False accusations are evil. And it's one thing for a person to misquote someone accidentally. It's another thing for a person to take someone's words and try to twist them and make them sound like it's something they're not. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. And Jesus actually warned his disciples in the, in the Sermon on the Mount that they might experience this. Remember when Jesus was giving the Beatitudes, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, blessed are the poor in heart, all these, and he says, blessed are they that are persecuted and for, uh, for my sake, and men say all manner of evil against them falsely, remember that Jesus said, say they, they intentionally accuse you of things that are not true, and you know what Jesus said, rejoice. And be exceeding glad. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. So, and then he goes on to say, but great is your reward in heaven. So God says, it's, it may happen to you. It may happen to me. I'm not saying that we never do anything wrong, but people can raise all kinds of false accusations and, and it's evil. I'm just saying this is exactly what Jesus is saying. It happened to the prophets, Jesus said, and it did happen to the prophets. We see that in the Old Testament. It happened to the disciples. It happened to Jesus, and hopefully not, but it may happen to you. You know why? Because there's a lot of hatred in this room, a lot of hatred toward Jesus. So that brings us to verse 60. If you look there in your Bibles of Mark chapter 14, verse 60, and the high priest stood up. All these other accusations have been happening. The chief priests are looking for witnesses, but verse 60 says the high priest stood up. The high priest is like the head, the president of the Sanhedrin. And he stood up and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? He asked Jesus, Why aren't you saying anything? I mean, Jesus is now given the opportunity to speak in his own defense. And Caiaphas is asking him, Why are you not answering these accusers? Answerest thou nothing? In verse 60, What is it? What is it which these witness against thee? Verse 61 says about Jesus, but he held his peace and answered nothing. 
Jesus was completely silent. And most of you would know that many, many hundreds of years before this, Isaiah wrote this about Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb. Doesn't speak. A sheep about to be sheared. So openeth not his mouth. Isaiah said he's not going to defend himself. Aren't you glad for a savior that did exactly what the Old Testament said he would do and fulfilled every prophecy? So the high priest asked him another question in verse 63. Verse 62, verse 61, keep backing up. Verse 61, then he asked him this, don't miss this. The high priest says, art thou the Christ, the son of the blessed? He's asking him, are you the Messiah? Are you the long-awaited Savior of Israel? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus said, what he say? I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest rent his clothes, tore his garments, and saith, What need we any further witnesses? Who's he saying we? He's talking about the Sanhedrin. Notice in verse 64, ye have heard the blasphemy. You heard it yourself. What think ye? What is your decision? What is your verdict? What do you say? Do you have, an, do we have the evidence we need? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. So Jesus was asked the question that he really couldn't avoid answering. He could have avoided it, but he, he didn't because he is the Messiah. He said, I am. That was an affirmation of the answer to their question. Are you the Messiah? Yes, I am. But I think for the Jews, as we see many, many times in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, that I am was more than that. I believe the I am was identifying himself as the I am of the Old Testament. You'll remember when Moses... Uh, was about to lead the children of Israel out of their Egyptian bondage. And God said to Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell him that God said to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I mean, Moses said, if I go to Pharaoh, what am I gonna, who am I going to tell him sent me? What is his name? This God, what is his name? And God says simply, I am that I am. Tell him I am sent you. Well, you and I may not make the connection but I guarantee you these scholars of the Old Testament law understood it when Jesus said I am he's saying I am the I am yes I am Messiah I am I am the I, I and, and by the way he said this is by the just for the record this is not the last time you're going to see me because you're going to see me again one day when I come in the clouds it's an amazing statement that Jesus made and that's all the high priest needed because for him, this is blasphemy. He rent his clothes. He just tore his garments. Said, we don't need any other witnesses. We've got all the witness we need in his own words. He said to them, you've heard the Sanhedrin. And they said, uh, you've heard him, to the Sanhedrin, said, you've heard what he said. And they condemned him to be executed. Guilty of blasphemy. 
And then the last verse we want to look at today, verse 65. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him and to say unto him, prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. This begins the brutal physical abuse and torture that we'll see Jesus endured in the next few weeks. They spit, on his, they spit on him. That's another fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. They spit on him. They covered his face, it says. In case we didn't understand what that means, the Gospel of Luke said they blindfolded him. They blindfolded him, and the Bible says they buffeted him. And if you were to look up that word buffet in a Bible dictionary, it tells you that the word buffet describes hitting with a closed fist. They put, a, they put a blindfold over him. They covered Jesus' head and began to pummel his face with a closed fist. And then they mocked him. They said, prophesy. And in the other Gospels, it tells us that he, they were actually said to it, if you're so smart, if you're such a prophet with a face, with your head covered with blindfold over your head, tell us who's hitting you. Mocking him. What a savior. The Bible ends in that verse by saying, and the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. So what we're witnessing in our journey through Mark now is the, are the final hours of Jesus' earthly journey leading up to the cross. Like me, you've probably read this many, many times, many times, some of you over the years, some of you maybe not so many times, but I'm fascinated by it. I'm amazed by it. It's a story of hatred and deceit, a story of religious corruption, a story of what people will do to eliminate innocent people sometimes. But it's also a story of unimaginable love. It's a story of hope. A story of forgiveness. A story of peace. A, to a story of eternal life. All because of what Jesus was doing. So I ask you today before we conclude. Put yourself in this narrative. Put yourself there. Jesus is being beaten. Jesus is being mocked falsely accused. I think when people sometimes take a side against Jesus, which sometimes people even do now, they don't really understand what they're doing, what they're saying. They don't understand who Jesus is and what Jesus was doing, how wrong he was being treated, how wrong he's being treated. Put yourself in this setting and, and I ask you this question because I think we ought to answer this question in our own mind. How, how do you respond to love like that? How, how would you respond to that? Nobody ever loved men like Jesus does. No one would ever go through what Jesus went through for me or for you. Nobody could and nobody would. Nobody. And if you're here today and you don't know him, he did all this that you can know him. That's why Jesus did this. 
They couldn't, have, they couldn't have stopped him, as we said last week. He could have called thousands of angels at any point. They, couldn't have, they could not have killed him had he not given himself up for this. And he did it for you. And he did it for me, that we could know him, that we could be forgiven. He didn't go to the sin, go to the cross because of his sin. He went to the cross because of your sin. And he went to the cross because of my sin. Because he loved us so much, he came to pay the price for our redemption. He came to suffer in our place. He came to satisfy the judgment and wrath of God in his own body that you and I would never face the wrath of God. So what are you going to do with him? People say, well, I just don't believe... What the Bible says is true. There's no denying, historically, there's no denying what Jesus did. And there's no denying, historically, that three days after this, he raised from the dead. So you can disbelieve and make, act like it doesn't matter, but I'm telling you, it's a historical fact. Jesus died on a cross outside Jerusalem, was buried, and three days later, he raised from the dead. What are you going to do with that, Jesus? And by the way, this is not the end of his story. He's telling the truth. He's coming back one of these days. If I were you, if I were sitting here today and I were you and I'm not, I don't know the Lord, I'm not, I'm not asking about becoming a Baptist or joining the church. I'm talking about do you know Christ? Have you repented of your sin? Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if not, you ought to trust him today. And when you trust him, he will change your life. Amen? And it'll be for the better. You ought to believe on Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Him. Maybe you'd like to do that. Maybe you want to do that. Maybe it's in your heart today. You could do that today. You could do it where you sit. Just cry out to Him and say, Lord, I need you. I want, to, I want you to save me. I need salvation. I'm, I know I'm a sinner. Right where you sit. Or if you want need help, or I'll be standing here in a moment. You can come and say, somebody... If somebody could just spend a few minutes and answer a few questions, I think it would help me. You ought to come today. And if you're saved, if you know you're saved, if you know you've been born again, I would like to think this would make all of us just want to give Him our life. And love him for all that he's done for us. Love him. We love him because he first loved us. Amen? Let's bow our heads together for prayer. With our heads bowed today and our eyes closed, would you just spend a few moments right now just thinking about, imagining the wonder of God's love for us, the price that Jesus would pay, the agony He would endure to win us, to win the war, that would, the spiritual war that would keep us from Him and He would give us eternal life. I'm telling you, what a blessing today. What a blessing. And if you're not saved today, this is not a small matter of little consequence. This is eternity. This is heaven or hell. This is forever. This is for real. This is for keeps. 
I'm going to pray and I'm going to urge you today to think about your own soul, to think about your spiritual need. And today, maybe to come, meet me here at the front and say, Preacher, I need some help with this, this, this decision. We're here to help one another. Father, as I pray today, I want to thank you for this passage of Scripture as Mark records it. Lord, thank you for the narrative that we have of what took place late, late one night, early in the morning before dawn, the corruption, the cruelty, the blindness, the deception, but also the resolve and the love of Jesus. Lord, thank you. May your word, may your word bring all of us to a closer relationship with you, a closer commitment to you, a greater appreciation of what you've done for us.